0: Well, hello and welcome to our Midsummer Banking Litigation Extravaganza. And before we start, uh, thank you to the lovely uh, uh, podcasters who've been sending their wonderful comments from around the world. Uh, First from the GC, who does his marathon training to our various episodes, to the delightful podcaster in Sydney, who took the time to thank us uh, for the show. Thank you all very much. It's your comments that uh, keep us going. Uh, For those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, with all this lovely weather, I wouldn't blame you uh for running out uh and going for a nice trip in the car but before you strap your bags to the back of the morgan um let me say hello to my co-host kerry morgan hello kerry how are you
1: i'm well john i i see what you did there i like
0: it yes well, that's not look of horror and to our guest speaker catherine bagg this afternoon hello catherine ace uh banking uh, litigation associate from hsf hello hi john Um, You are a fan, I think, uh, Catherine, of Ian Fleming's books, is that right?
2: Not sure where you got that from.
0: Well, you are, because you told me you were. Um, uh, But you'll know, if you are, that he wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Um, So let's hop in the back of the flying car and go for a summer tour. Where are you taking us first, Catherine?
2: Flying out from London, our first destination is Lebanon, to consider the High Court's decision in Bank of Beirut and Mukazal a case in which a commercial borrower sought to set aside a financial restructuring on the grounds of alleged unfairness by the bank. Well, thanks, Catherine. I think this is quite an interesting one to flag,
1: as we quite often see arguments connected with restructuring in the context of mis-selling mitigation.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. This sort of issue crops up quite a lot, where there's been a payment default um, under an alleged mis-sold product, and the customer's business has subsequently been transferred to the bank's restructuring or workout unit. I think though this case got a slightly different angle because the defendant wasn't a corporate but was rather an individual. Is that right Catherine?
2: Yes that's right. In this particular case the claimant bank provided loans to a company Acacia. When Acacia fell behind on repayments the bank offered to lend an additional sum to Acacia on the condition that Mr Mucasal who was the ultimate beneficial owner of Acacia and had previously provided a personal guarantee to secure the original loan would repay this additional sum. This proposal was accepted But when Acacia went into insolvency, Mr. Mucasal did not pay up, and so the bank brought a claim against him personally. Mr. Mucasal's main line of argument was that the relationship arising from the loan facility was unfair under Section Section 140A of the Consumer Credit Act, 1974.
0: How would that particular provision have helped Mr. Mucasal here, Catherine?
2: Essentially, Section 140A provides the court with certain powers to ameliorate a debtor-creditor relationship by making certain orders. Should it find that the relationship is unfair within the meaning of the consumer credit act one of the main battlegrounds was whether mr mccasle was an unsophisticated borrower so as to enable him to take advantage of section 140 a the court had no trouble in rejecting this argument the court emphasized that the loan facility and restructuring were negotiated in the context of a corporate restructuring which was carried out with professional advice mr mccasle was clearly someone who despite being an individual was familiar with offshore corporate holding structures, cross-border commercial transactions, and very substantial financial dealings. This was actually one of those cases where the customer could not point to anything about the terms or the way the restructuring was done, which suggested unfairness. But it but it is a good reminder that the courts are hot on the issue of sophistication. They will not accept unquestionably claims that an individual is an unsophisticated borrower. They are likely to look in detail at the nature of the borrower in the context of the transaction. This will always turn on the facts so, section 140A of the Consumer Credit Act is an important provision to be aware
0: of. Well, yeah, thank you for that, Catherine, especially because we're seeing that provision being thrown into ever more uh, mis selling cases. But for those of you who are interested, we have a banking litigation blog post on this particular case. So, if you fancy some light holiday reading, please do take a look. And there's a link in the show notes. And next up is me on our grand tour. We'll be flying from Saudi Arabia to Italy uh, for a deep dive uh, on the case of. Technimont Arabia and NatWest. So, fasten your seatbelts because this is an interesting one, giving the court the chance to consider a receiving bank's liability in the context of an authorized push payment fraud, or APP as they're known. Uh, the facts were as follows. So, Technemont Arabia, a Saudi company, had been induced by a phishing email to transfer 5 million US dollars to an account held with the defendant bank believing that it was transferring the money to an entity within its own group structure, which was based in Italy. In fact, the receiving account was held by a third-party fraudster. The flight was diverted, it seems. By the time the fraud was discovered, most of the monies had uh, unsurprisingly been squirreled away from the receiving account. Presumably looking for somebody with deep pockets to pursue, uh, Technomont brought a claim for knowing receipt and unjust enrichment against the bank where the fraudster's account was held.
2: So the facts involve an APP fraud, money being transferred into the wrong account, and the blame being placed on the banks. Why was a Quince Care claim not advanced?
0: I can think of somebody else on this call, Catherine, who will take that point.
2: Well, (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, Catherine, you're right in saying this sounds quite a bit like a Quince Care case. But a classic Quince Care scenario involves a customer giving a payment instruction to its own bank to make a transfer out of its account. The claim is then based on whether there were red flags to indicate that the instruction was an attempt to defraud the customer so that the bank acted negligently in making the payment out. In other words, Quince Care cases involve claims against the bank transferring the funds. The present case is different in that the claimant sought to take action against the bank that was receiving the funds, presumably because the bank had allowed a fraudster to open and hold an account with the bank.
0: So you're going to tell us, Kerry, that this could have been a Quince Care case if Technomont had brought the claim against its own bank for making the payment out?
1: Precisely. And in fact, that's similar to what happened in Philip and Barclays, which we covered in a previous edition of the podcast. Uh, But in the present case, the claim was against the receiving bank. So it was outside of Quince Care.
0: You might want to do a roundup on Quince Care We're getting a lot of questions coming in from our podcasters about it for the future. Anyway, thank you very much for the the short roundup. Just now, that was very helpful. But the high level outcome is that Technomont's arguments were unsuccessful. So first on the knowing receipt front, Technomont argued that the equitable principle involves uh, imposing a liability on the defendant bank to account as constructive trustee of the assets received in breach of trust or fiduciary duty. And in the court's eyes, there were numerous problems with this argument. The first was that the $5 million in question was not trust property. And secondly, following Twin Sector and Yardley, uh, knowing receipt cases only arise in situations where the defendant, here the bank, had received money in breach of trust for its own use. So in the present case, the bank had received the money not for its own account, but for uh, the use or on behalf of another customer, albeit a customer engaging in fraud.
2: And did the claimant fare any better
0: on the unjust enrichment claim? Uh, well, no, no, it didn't try, uh, fare well on that uh, limb either, Catherine. Uh, for an unjust enrichment claim uh, to be made out, one of the necessary elements is for the claimant to prove that the defendant benefited at the expense of the claimant. But this ground failed in the facts of the case because there were no direct dealings between the claimant and the defendant bank. The funds had passed through different accounts in the international banking system, in order to effect the transfer from Technomont's bank to the defendant bank. So the court said there was no direct transfer, and therefore there was no unjust enrichment. But even if this and all the other elements of unjust enrichment had been made out, the court said, obviously on an obiter basis, that the bank would have had a complete defence to the claim, uh, namely the uh, defence of change of position. And in saying that, the court uh, relied on uh, a case very well known to podcasters, Lipkin, Gorman and Carp uh, as authority for the proposition that a change of position defence is available to a person whose position has changed so much that it would be inequitable to require them to make restitution. And this applied here because of course the fraudster had transferred the funds out of its account with the defendant bank such that the bank was no longer holding any of the claimant's money.
1: Thanks John. You, I've always pronounced it Lipkin, Gorman and Cartnail in my head.
0: I, I did until I was corrected. Cartnalia. I think he was an Italian gentleman.
1: Oh, it could always be rely rely on you to um, help us get the pronunciation of the case names right.
0: I think you've got some more uh, Latinate uh, uh, pronunci- pronunciations coming up later.
1: <laughs> Good luck, Catherine. Uh, um, yeah, anyway, of course, we have a blog post on this decision for any listeners who would like to read uh, in more detail about the case.
0: Excellent. Uh, well, next up, Um, We are going to take uh, a break from our world tour, and I should say there's a link to that previous case uh, in the show notes if you're interested. But we're going to take a break from this and abandon geographical uh, tours altogether so we can take a look at some crypto litigation updates. Kerry, over to you.
1: Thank you, John. Um, So the first case I wanted to highlight is Lavinia Deborah Osborne and Persons Unknown and Ozone. An increasing amount of litigation seems to be arising from uh, crypto asset disputes, many of them relating to fraud or theft of the assets, as was the case in this dispute that I'm going to cover now. So here, following the apparent theft of the claimant's non... uh, Now, is it fungible or fungible?
0: Fungible, Kerry,
1: fungible. Fungible. Non-fungible tokens or NFTs from her crypto wallet Uh, the court granted an order restraining persons unknown from dissipating the NFTs. The claimant traced the NFTs to two accounts hosted by the same marketplace operator that she had used, a peer-to-peer NFT marketplace called Ozone. However, because of the anonymous nature of crypto assets, she did not know the identity of the person who controlled the wallets to which the NFTs had been transferred, and so she could not name the respondent. And for the less tech-savvy amongst us, please can you explain what an NFT is? Uh, yes, of course. Um, so thanks to Charlie Morgan uh, in our arbitration team for this. Uh, an NFT is a token or crypto asset which represents an object, for example, art, music, uh, collectibles, etc., and is stored on a blockchain. Unlike cryptocurrencies, these tokens are non-fungible because they are not replaceable or interchangeable with others uh, of their kind. Uh, Unique information can be encoded into each token.
0: So I could technically upload my photographs of Cornwall onto blockchain, Kerry?
1: Uh, You could indeed, John. Good luck with that. And there are even more interesting uses of NFTs for the purposes of litigation, which I will come on to in my next update. But getting back to the case at hand, the court also granted a bankers' trust order against Ozone, requiring it to provide information to enable identification of the wallet owners.
2: It's interesting to see bankers' trust orders being used in this situation rather than a Norwich farm. Was there a reason for that? Uh, Yes, indeed, Catherine. So
1: Ozone, the marketplace operator, was an American corporation with no connection to England, and this meant that the claimant had to apply to serve proceedings out of the jurisdiction. The English court has generally declined permission to serve out in respect of Norwich Pharmacal orders, whereas for bankers' trust orders, the courts have recently begun permitting service out of the jurisdiction. It was therefore a bankers' trust order that was sought in this case. There are quite a few interesting nuggets in this decision, but that's all I have time for today. So if you'd like more detail, then please do check out our blog post on the case. There is a link uh, in the show notes, as always.
0: And Kerry, you don't get away that lightly. You said you had two cases in our crypto detour.
1: Ah, yes. My second case is Tialoia and Persons Unknown and Binance Holdings. Um, I'll be very rapid on this one and won't get bogged down with background facts. As I hinted during the previous case summary, this decision is interesting because it shows a new use for NFTs in the context of litigation. Listeners may recall that in the previous edition of this podcast, we took an impromptu city break to New York to discuss the Supreme Court's decision uh, to allow the legal representatives of a fintech company to serve a temporary restraining order on a defendant via an NFT, The present case is an example of the English court granting an interim order permitting the service of court proceedings on persons unknown digitally using an NFT. This is only the second example of this kind of order being used globally to date.
0: I may be showing my admittedly young age now, but I'm trying to picture in my mind what service via an NFT actually entails, if that's the right terminology.
1: Yeah, no, I know what you mean, John. So apparently, a service token is a, a novel NFT, which can be found on the blockchain. And it links or has a link to a copy of the relevant court document on the relevant law firm's website. So you click on it, and you are served. Jesse. Quite. Um, This demonstrates, I think, that uh, international developments in cryptocurrency litigation will likely have an influence on how domestic courts treat the same issues. And it also shows how the judiciary on an international stage are becoming increasingly sympathetic to the challenges of effecting service on pseudonymous defendants in crypto cases.
0: Fascinating. Next week, enforcement of an award against a crypto thing. Uh, Thank you for that, Kerry. Uh, We're going to finish off now with a tour of some procedural developments that have emerged over the past couple of months. I'll kick off with a discussion of a case concerning litigation privilege. This is the case of Lower Financing and Credit Suisse. And thinking back to Three Rivers and the Bingham Inquiry Unit um, in that case, the question in this particular case was whether the identities of the individuals giving instructions to the lawyers on its behalf with a view to litigation could be covered by litigation privilege. Uh, that The answer in the uh, uh, present case was no. The uh, court articulated a simple test for the present case. First, the question is whether the communication itself is privileged, and secondly, the court should ask itself whether that privilege will be undermined by the disclosure of the person's identity. Applied to the fact, the court decided that there was no evidence that privilege would be undermined. Should the identity of the individuals be revealed.
1: Does that imply that in some situations the identities of such individuals will be protected?
0: Yeah, yeah, that must follow. The judge noted that each case will require a decision on its facts. So for example, in some cases disclosure of the identity of those giving instructions might trespass on the content of those instructions. So I think the point is we should be careful not to generalise here. In some situations it may well be necessary for individuals to have their identity checked as they go through passport control, whereas in others, they may not have to. But look, it's an interesting development uh, and one to watch. But over to you, Kerry, for the next Cobbett.
1: So yet another decision has emerged on practice direction 57 AC. Uh, the practice direction um, that applies to trial witness statements signed since 2021. The present decision, uh, Curtis and Zurich Insurance, highlights that parties should think carefully before applying to strike out an opponent's witness um, statement for non-compliance. We have seen previously that courts are willing to impose sanctions for serious failures in compliance um, with the practice direction. However, the latest decision emphasises that an application under the practice direction should not be used as a procedural weapon, Uh, So, in summary, the court held that while the defendant had no excuse for failing to comply with the formal requirements, in particular the requirements for a confirmation of compliance by the witness and a certificate of compliance by the legal representative, the failures as to content were not particularly bad. Um, And the court said that strikeout should be saved for the most serious cases.
0: It does seem to be a sense emerging that the courts are becoming wise to the tactical use or abuse of the practice direction, and perhaps that some parties are flagging relatively minor breaches to try and gain some sort of upper hand in the litigation.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, John. So the present decision highlights that where a party is concerned about non-compliance, it should raise that concern with the opponent promptly and attempt to reach an agreement. The courts are generally favouring a more cooperative approach to litigation. And then Catherine, I think you're going to be transporting us to the
2: final destination. Thanks, Kerry. Two more stops before we fly home. Um, First, taking a slightly circuitous route and stopping off in China, where the People's Supreme Court has granted enforcement of a commercial judgment by the English High Court on the basis of the principle of reciprocity. The case is Hu 72 Shi Wai Ren Number 1, 2018, and it represents a significant liberalisation in China's previously restrictive approach to reciprocity previously the chinese courts took the position that it would only enforce the judgment of an english court should it be able to identify a prior instance in which the english courts have enforced a chinese judgment the position following the case is that a chinese court may now enforce a foreign judgment on the basis of reciprocity so long as as it is satisfied that the foreign court could under its laws enforce a chinese judgment the judgment is part of a trend of liberalization of china's approach to international disputes that has been evidenced in China's increasing efforts to promote international mediation alongside litigation and arbitration. Uh, Secondly, we're taking a short layover in Europe. Um, The High Court has considered the rules in the recast Brussels regulation in the context of proceedings that commenced at the end of the Brexit transition period, which was 31st December 2020. The case name is Simon Dan Taché, and the rules the court looked at are known as the Liz Pendens rules.
0: Uh, could you please remind our podcasters about the Lease Pendens rules?
2: Of course. The rules essentially state that where identical proceedings are started in two member states, the court second seized must stay its proceedings until the first court determines whether it has jurisdiction. Where the proceedings are related, the court second seized has a discretion to stay. Pursuant to Article 67 of the EU UK withdrawal agreement, the Lease Pendens provisions in the recast Brussels regulation continue to apply in the UK where, and this is the key point, the proceedings were started in an EU member state before the end of the Brexit transition period and the English proceedings were started only after. The court rejected an argument that the English proceedings also had to be commenced before the end of the transition period and I should say that we have blog posts on all of these procedural developments and have included links in the show notes.
0: Well, thank you, Catherine, for that wonderful uh, tour uh, via Chitty, And thank you, podcasters, for joining us for another episode. If you've not yet gone away, do have a wonderful uh, and restful summer holiday. Do check uh, the show notes uh, for notes and all of the cases we've discussed today. And please don't forget to check that your passport is in date. I speak from uh, bitter experience. But uh, for now, thank you very much indeed, uh, Catherine, our guest, for joining. Thank you, co-host Kerry, for making the show as wonderful as it always is. And thank you to James Behind the Glass for uh, all the techno wizardry. Thank you very much and goodbye.